0: Good works. That's what we're saved to do. We are not saved just to be saved. We are saved to do good. Let me just encourage you as well, if you're here today and you're not a Christian, you're wondering what Christianity is all about, what Jesus is about. If you've been discouraged from Christianity or confused or turned off from Christianity because people say they are Christians but they are just as lazy and hypocritical and mean-spirited as the rest of the world... Well, friends, watch closely. It turns out they're not a Christian. Or hopefully, by God's grace, they're on the way to repent from those things. Because Christians are saved to do good. We don't always do good. We sometimes sin. We need to confess and repent and grow. The Christians are saved to do good. We read it this morning in Ephesians chapter 2. Paul says it like this. This is the gospel, the good news. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not a result of works so that no one may boast. That's what it means to be a Christian. To be saved by grace through faith. To have faith that Jesus was crucified for your sins. That you don't deserve to be saved. You can't do enough good works to be saved. But you're saved by grace through believing in Jesus Christ. That he died for your sins. That he rose from the grave and that as God's Son, He is now standing before God for you in heaven. Your forgiveness is through Jesus Christ. You'd be surprised. This is not common thinking. That our works don't save us as we sang this morning. met a man up in the parking lot a few uh, weeks ago. I asked him, what makes you right with God? What makes you right in regards to the wrath and the punishment that we deserve because of our sin? His answer was very simple. You have to make sure that your good works outweigh your bad. Friends, that's the exact opposite of what we have been reading and singing from the Bible all morning. It's the exact opposite. Our good works do not prepare us for salvation. Salvation by grace through faith is God preparing us for good works, it's always that direction. Our good works don't prepare us for salvation from God. Salvation from God, His grace, prepares us for good works. What we read this morning in Ephesians 2.10, here's what it says next. We are His workmanship. He, He worked us, He fashioned us, created in Christ Jesus for good works. You've been saved by grace through faith. We are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Christian, if you're following and believing in Jesus Christ, let this sink in. You've been created twice now for good works. You were created in the first place. All men, all people were created for good. We were created in the image of God, to image Him, to do good, to to be right, to be righteous and holy in the world. But we haven't. We all, like Adam and Eve, have all fallen from that glory of righteousness and we've fallen by the way of sin. But if you come and put your faith in Jesus Christ, and are converted by the power of the Holy Spirit, the language Paul uses here is that you are created in Christ Jesus. Recreated. If you are in Christ, we're a new creation again. To be a Christian is to be created again for good works. Paul says this is why we're made alive spiritually. These good works are all include everything that we are called to do in Christ. Much of which Paul explains in Ephesians and other epistles in the New Testament. The good that we are to do, that we are created to walk in in Christ, is not necessarily some unique plan for your life. Oh, if I could just figure out the good that God wants me to do. I mean, what a, what a frustration I've seen so many people go through. Thinking the good God wants them to do is a specific job or a specific person to marry or a specific, some kind of unique snowflake plan for them, when really the good that God has prepared for us to do is to walk in Christ likeness. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it for the Lord. That's the words that you use with your mouth, the generosity that you share. The discipleship that you give to help other people follow Jesus, Ephesians 4. The forbearance and the patience that you give others as you have been given, like in Colossians 3. The tithe that you give, like in 1 Corinthians. The service in the children's ministry, or as a a deacon, preaching the good of being a submissive and sacrificial wife or husband. Being a tender parent, a loving child, caring for your neighbor. All the good which is of God. The, the whole life which should be walked in a manner worthy of our calling, Paul says in Ephesians 4, one, Living like God because God is good. We have been saved like it says in Leviticus. You should be holy because I, the Lord your God, am holy. We've been saved, not just to be saved, but for good works. And maybe you're worn down from doing good works. What good work have you been discouraged from continuing? Maybe it's being a godly wife or a husband. Maybe just working hard at work at your day job. Being hospitable. Maybe the hard work of taking care of your body. I know, it's, it's a really guilt-ridden day to, to say such a thing. Just think, what are the good works that you know are good in God's Word and in Christ's likeness that you have attached the feeling or the thought, I just don't want to. Or I want to, but I just, just can't. Discipleship? Maybe personal Prayer? evangelism, deacon ministry, maybe just connecting with guests when they come to our church, family devotion. Maybe you're worn down from caring for your widowed parent like Paul instructed Timothy. Maybe you're worn down about being the only Christian in your home. Maybe you're tired of always welcoming guests and taking them to lunch when you think no one else is. Maybe you just don't want to do the dishes. Kids, maybe the idea of going back to school has one single thought connected to it. I don't want to. Maybe teaching or leaving Bible study and doing discipleship is feeling tiresome. Paul writes to the church to encourage them to continue doing good even though they face great opposition to doing good. Opposition that will wear them down from doing good. If you look back in Second Thessalonians that Tommy read for us, you'll see the book kind of has three anchors or three ends to three sections. You see it in 2 Thessalonians 1 verse 11, Paul is praying for the church to have, be fulfilled in every resolve for good and work of faith. For good in every work of faith, and you see it in the next section, the next discussion in chapter two seventeen, Paul's hoping their hearts will be comforted and established for every good work and word. In two seventeen, the end of the next section, and the end of the third main section in verse three thirteen. Very simply, do not grow weary in doing good. Do not grow weary in doing good. In our state of being worn down, unmotivated from continuing and doing whatever the good the Lord has given us in Christ's likeness and in our circumstances, Paul knows there are three challenges that the church in Thessalonica is facing and they're not in principle uncommon to what every church will face. Three challenges to continuing good work in the name of Christ and Christ's likeness in Second Thessalonians. The first is pain. The second is deception. and the third, don't get up and walk out. The third is laziness. Laziness. Pain, deception and laziness. Those are basically the three sections that end with a resolve for good work or a hopefulness to continue in good work think first about pain when something hurts you tend to stop doing that thing when you put your hand on a hot stove you tend most of the time to pull your hand off of the stove when persecution or affliction, Paul uses those two words in the first introduction part of 2 Thessalonians. Persecution or affliction comes, there will be temptation to feel, maybe stop what might be causing the pain. And sometimes doing good will actually bring more pain. And this is the call of Jesus Christ. You want to be my disciples? Take up your cross, let's all go die. The call to Christ is a call to come and die. Look what happened back in Acts chapter 17. Acts chapter 17. We're beginning, beginning in the book of Acts 17, or Acts next week, that book. But trust me, it will be a while before we see Acts 17 again. Page 926 in your house Bibles. This is the account of when Paul went and preached in Thessalonica. I mean, what was it like for them when they received Gospel. Surely it was a revival. Surely it was wonderful. Surely everyone's happy and, and, and joyful, and it's good being a Christian. It actually brought a lot of pain being a Christian in Thessalonica. Look at Acts 17, verse 5 through 9. Some began to believe the message that Paul was preaching about Jesus, and here's what happened Acts 17, 5 through 9. But the Jews were jealous, and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men have turned the world upside down, and they have come here also. And Jason received them in his house. I mean, they're not even accusing Jason of being a Christian. They're just saying he received him into his house. He took him in, and they're all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there's another king, Jesus. And that's got people upset. There's another king besides Jesus. And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as a security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. So take some money, let them go. Ransack the house, let them go. That's, what's going, that's what it's like to be a Christian in Thessalonica when they first heard about Jesus. Well it seems in Second Thessalonians, even the second letter, this is continuing. This is the continued experience of the church in Thessalonica. Go back to Second Thessalonians chapter one, verse four. Paul's encouraged about their endurance and suffering. He says, chapter one, verse four, "Therefore we boast, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God, for your steadfastness and the faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are enduring." not easy being a Christian in Thessalonica. It's no surprise this would make Christians feel like giving up. Make them want to quit. The Christians. Don't grow weary in doing good. Do not let current frustrations, inconveniences, costs, the loss of earthly reputations, or any earthly discomfort discourage you from walking in faith and doing the good god has created you to do in jesus christ namely be like him now this is four subpoints to point 1 pain paul gives four ways we are encouraged in persecution and affliction to continue doing good in particular, in this passage, in persecution. First, put persecution in perspective of the end. Put the current persecution in perspective of the end. If you are receiving persecution or affliction because you are a Christian, because you are doing good, put it in perspective of the end. Look in Second Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 5. This is what Paul tells them. This is the evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God, for which you are also suffering, since indeed God considers it just to repay with afflictions those who afflict you. Suffering for the name of Jesus Christ is part of the worthiness to be in the kingdom of Jesus Christ. If you would rather have cars, family, jobs, money, friends, and stuff, and experiences, than the kingdom of God and the suffering comes with it. It only makes sense that you're not worthy of the kingdom. Suffering persecution for the kingdom is a sign that you love the king and his kingdom more than the kingdom of the earth. No Church, you will be granted relief when Jesus returns from heaven. Paul continues, Second Thessalonians 1, 7 through 10. Pick up in verse 6, since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you, verse 7, and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us, when? Notice when, not now. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels and flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not know who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, they will not now they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. When he comes on that day. To be glorified in his saints and be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. Suffering now, glory later. That's the formula for following Jesus. Suffering now, glory later. Those who persecute you, put it in perspective in the end. If you are not converted, if anyone is not converted, and repent and follow Jesus Christ, they will suffer the punishment they deserve for disobeying the gospel of Jesus Christ. And though they might have had earthly comfort now, they will endure suffering later. As you are enduring suffering now, they will enjoy glory later. It's almost too sobering to even say Don't let what looks like unsettled accounts between those who are trusting Christ and those who are not trusting Christ discourage you from doing good. You keep doing good, even if it costs you persecution and afflictions, putting your pain and perspective of the end. Second thing, God's power comes in prayer. Have you had your your phone die recently? Isn't that the worst? I mean, that's suffering right there. I and mean, you see it happening. You, you have it in your hand. You're, you're doing something important. You forgot the charge cord. Or like at our house, for, for some mysterious cosmic reason, you can't find it. The phone gives you that you've got 5% left. Then it's a 1% warning. And then it just... And it just goes black. You can click the buttons and, and, and you shake it and, and you look at it and, and it's, just, it's just dark. Look what Paul says in Second Thessalonians 1, verse 11. To this end, we pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power. His power. You take your phone pretty far from its power source. Miles and miles and miles and miles. But it's always going to need to get power again. So Christians understand, our power to do good is not our own power. The word there is dynamis, dynamite. If you are like me, you heard a lot of dynamite last night. It's explosive, it's powerful. Paul is saying we need God's power to continue to do good. And how does this come? How do you plug in to the power to do good? Prayer. Paul's praying. Paul's praying for power from God. Praying that they will continue to do good in God's power. Pray for energy from God. In your life groups, pray for your life groups. Pray for your whole church to do good by the power of God. Gather back as a church on Sunday nights this year. Here's a New Year's resolution I would give you and bind your conscience with as a church. Come on Sunday evenings to pray. To pray. Come to pray. Paul is saying, I'm praying that you would be resolved and fulfilled for every good work and word in His power. Pray that your church though they might be low, is strengthened by God to continue to do all the good that God would have us do in the city of Austin in the world. In your personal time, pray like Paul. Pray for yourself, pray for others, that God will fulfill every resolve for good and works of faith by His power. Friends, don't look down at the church next to you or the the members next to you and think, man, they are so weak, what is wrong with them? Maybe no one's praying for them. Pray for them. Pray to receive God's power. Thirdly, the purpose is the glory of Christ. The purpose is the glory of Christ. Pain, any kind of affliction or suffering while we're doing good in the world never changes the purpose, which is the glory of Christ. I mean, why does it matter so much what I do? I mean, why does it matter so much? So I don't want to. So what? Our good work is Jesus' glory good work is jesus's glory jesus is now risen and in heaven and here we are on earth and just like the sun is a million whatever miles away and yet the rays of the sun are here and warm the earth and give us light so christ is in heaven but his glory is here what's the purpose of doing good look at verse 12 so that the name of our lord jesus may be glorified in you and you in him where does Jesus' glory shine on the earth? In the life of the church. So do good. It's Jesus' glory that's at stake. It really isn't about us. It really isn't about us. It's, it's about Jesus' glory. And our glory that we have is in Him being glorified on the earth. As a parent, you ever have someone brag on your kids? We were out for dinner the other night with Colette's sister and her family from, from Pennsylvania, I mean, you want to talk about you know, unity when there's division, Cowboys and Eagles fans getting together. guy from Pennsylvania and their family, ten of us at a restaurant, it's crazy, it's you know, kids, and at the end the waitress commented to the children, I just want to thank you guys for being so polite and so well behaved this evening. And I was thankful as well, but as a parent I was thinking, you're welcome. You think they just did that on their own? You think, you think, they, just, they, think they were just born behaving? That's my glory. I mean, more than anything else, that's Colette's glory in our kids, watching them be so respectful and so well behaved. Anything that we do that's good, anything that we do that's good, having been saved by grace through faith and prepared as new creations... For good works, anything we do, it's Jesus' glory. It's Jesus' glory. I don't want to. You don't want to what? You don't want to glorify Jesus on the earth? Think about the purpose of our good works and what they do so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him. Fourthly, it's all by grace. We were saved by grace and will continue in good works by grace. He says in verse twelve. Read the whole verse. So that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you, and you in Him, according to the grace of our Lord God of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Friends, remember when you start thinking, "I don't deserve this suffering. I don't deserve this pain. I'm doing all this good, and it's so difficult, and it's so wearisome, and it's so tiring. I don't, I don't deserve the kind of affliction that comes with the good." and starts to discourage you from paying the cost of doing good, remember, you don't deserve this forgiveness. We don't deserve this salvation. If we don't deserve the ability to do good for the glory of Jesus' name, everything we do, our salvation, our sanctification, our life, our glorification, it's by grace. It's by grace. We don't deserve the opportunity to do good for Jesus' glory. The second main point is deception. Respond to pain of persecution and affliction, putting things in perspective by prayer, remembering the purpose of the glory of Christ, that it's all by grace. What if you're doing good is because you have had a lack of assurance in your salvation or your understanding of the gospel? Started to think some things I've never thought. The word deconstruction is part of my vocabulary now. Other teaching seems to cancel out some things about Christianity. So, the impetus, the, the motivation to live in holiness and obedience will also begin to wane. When you're afflicted with lies in the world, you tend to be less motivated to do the good of God. This is actually one of the longer passages in 2 Thessalonians but we're going to keep it simple and succinct. There's so much that would be here to unpack. One big problem in Thessalonica, though, is stemming back to Paul's first letter, the teaching about Jesus returning to the earth already. It was spreading around that Jesus had already come and that those in Thessalonica had missed the blessing of salvation. What we're seeing here in the second chapter is that when your doctrine of Christ is off, your motivation for good is low. Look at the summary of the situation in 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 9 through 12. Paul is showing it's not those who teach falsely about Christ who should be... who teach falsely about Christ, they should be unsettled and alarmed. But those who believe in Christ, it's they who should be secure in their hearts. Comforted, we'll see. Chapter 2, verse 9 to 12. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs... And wonders. This is going to happen before the end, which hasn't happened, Paul says. With all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. Therefore, God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false in order that all may be condemned who do not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. But see, Paul's point is the contrast of the Christian. Verse, chapter 2, verse 13 to 14. But, in contrast to the deceived, to the deluded, we ought always give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved, through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. To this He called you through our gospel. Back in Acts 17, we preached, you heard, that was God calling you so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Remember your salvation by believing the truth about Jesus. There's fundamental confidence to the Christian life, strength for doing good in the simple truth truthfulness that Jesus has died on the cross for your sins he's raised from the grave and he is coming to take us home with him what is the application of truth here it's comfort it's comfort it's comfort to the heart of the Christian salvation from the wrath and destruction of God is an eternal comfort which motivates good Do you know what it means to be comforted? Is your heart comforted today? What did that word mean in ancient language? One of the ways it was originally used was in Greek and Roman plays. It's similar to the word for a chorus. What does the chorus do in a Greek or Roman play? Well, as the narrative goes along, from time to time, the chorus, or we might call it a choir will collectively sing interpretations of the mental or emotional state of the main characters. It's basically a Disney movie. In pivotal moments, there's a song which comes along in the narrative and communicates, inquire the emotion, the trouble, or the thinking of the main character. The idea of the comforting chorus is exemplified in the comforting relationship between Timon and Pumbaa. In their song, Akuna Matata, there's a moment where Pumbaa is recalling his shame, and Timon is responding like a chorus. Pumbaa says, and oh, the shame, and Timon says, and he was ashamed. Pumbaa says, thought of changing my name. Oh, what's in a name? And Timon responds. Pumbaa, and I got downhearted in Timon. How did you feel? I'll let you go listen to the rest of the lyrics later. That's how comfort works. Coming alongside The situation of suffering and affliction might not entirely change. But comfort when someone else comes along. Watch how Paul takes this word for comfort from a Greek chorus and makes it something God personally does Himself. God becomes the comforter. Look in chapter 2, verse 16-17. through Now, May our Lord Jesus Christ Himself, Himself, and God, and God, our Father, who loved us and gave us eternal comfort, comfort, the chorus of comfort and good hope through grace. May Christ and God comfort your hearts and establish them, your hearts, in every good work and word. The highest comfort for the Christian comes not from a musical, not from a chorus, not from a touching movie or coffee, but God Himself. And what's the refrain that God would repeat to comfort saints who are in danger of being deceived and confused and believing lies in the world, this truth. See it there. He loves us and gives us eternal comfort and good hope through grace. The truth of the gospel. Dear Christian, the comfort that is between us and continuing in good works is the reassurance of God's love and grace through Jesus Christ. Let the gospel itself, the simple gospel that God loves you and is gracious towards you in Christ pierce through the lies that God has forgotten you, that Jesus has already come or some other doctrine that would distract you or something that would be opposed to the truthfulness of Jesus Christ, that God doesn't care for you. The gospel is to us the eternal comforting chorus which establishes our hearts and that means it strengthens our hearts. It makes them stronger, makes them able to do more, endure more, and last longer. When your heart is weak, it needs to hear the chorus of the gospel again. And this is the ministry of God himself to us, his saving us. Friends, this is one reason I think as we might have felt the enjoyment of this morning, it's so crucial to show up and sing every week. How many saints are so desperate for the comfort of the truth of the gospel every week. And how beautiful and strengthening to the motivation of doing good is God's people singing the gospel of God to one another. That's Jesus's. That's God's encouragement and comfort, the eternal comfort of our salvation. This is the reason that saying the gospel in life group and discipleship and other Christians over and over is so important. This is the so so reason that it's so important to find a church that teaches the truth of the Bible rather than man's emotion, man's feeling, man's desires and plans and schemes. Because the comfort of God, which leads to doing good, is the eternal comfort of His love and grace in the gospel for our hearts. There are other comforts in God's creation. Sex and coffee and ice cream, presents and stockings. There are all sorts of comforts and everything that is good is of God. But the truth of the gospel is referred to as an eternal comfort. An eternal comfort. None of those comforts in the world are so comforting from anxiety like the eternal comfort of the gospel. If it's New Year's Day, Take time to make some resolutions today. It's a really good day for that. Make resolutions. As you think about your resolutions, maybe instead of reading a book about organization and about dieting and about time management, something specific along those lines, all those would be very good. I encourage you to do those. I can think of some good books for those things. Maybe what your heart needs is to take time to read the gospel, the comfort that leads to doing good, in your heart, read the gospel. Read through a book of the Bible. Read through one of the gospels. Maybe just spend time today just reading through one of the gospels. Maybe make that your first week plan. Read through one of the gospels this week. For the sake of your heart being comforted by the gospel, so your heart will be strengthened to do good. That you What are you going to go read in a book this week that you didn't already know? About how to manage your time, about what you should be eating, about what you should be doing. Most of us just like the comfort in our heart and the strength to do what is good. Some books that I would encourage you to read, Providence by John Piper, it's big, it's huge, it's thick, it might be scary, it's really good. It's so comforting to my soul. The Joycing in Christ by Michael Reeves, it's not a how-to book. It's not a how-to-live-your-life book. It's not a this-is-the-good-to-do book. It's a filling your heart with the comfort of who Jesus is and the truth of Jesus. In line with Acts coming next week, there's a book out on the foyer called The Mission of the Triune God by Patrick Schreiner. It's a wonderful overview of what God is doing in the world to save sinners through the book of Acts. Just some books that get your heart to dwell on what God has done in salvation. Observations for eternal comfort in Scripture. Because the comfort of the gospel establishes, it strengthens your heart in every good work and word. Now, lastly, and I've been mercifully short to make this one of the least long ones, laziness. Paul has one final challenge to good work, and it's laziness. Or as he calls it here, idleness. Lack of determination, lack of order or direction, aimless, effortless. Look what he says in chapter 3, verse 11 through 12. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness. Not busy at work, but here's a play on words, but busy bodies. Now, such persons, we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly, to earn their own living. It's possible that the good you are struggling to do is a matter of laziness. Maybe the good you are struggling to do is vocational work. Maybe it's not vocational work. Maybe it's parenting or ministry or, or making sure your kids are safe on the Internet. Or doing family devotions, making your life about someone else. Consider several proverbial wisdoms on laziness and see if your excuses for not doing the good, you're struggling to do good, you're struggling to do, hold up. All from Proverbs 26, verse 13. The sluggard says there's a line in the road, there's a line in the streets. Something really bad might happen. I could get sick. We could get in a car accident, a piano might fall on us. I don't know if you've heard, it's allergy season, we can't do anything. Always has an excuse, always has an inconvenience in the way from doing what they're supposed to be doing. In verse 14, Proverbs 26, As a door turns on its hinges, so does a sluggard on his bed. I'm sure you've never done this. An arm goes off, you just, you just roll over to the other side. Alarm goes off a few minutes, like so you just roll back over and you hit the snooze again. Now, there's nothing wrong with sleeping a few extra moments, but that's what a sluggard's life is like. Oh, you woke me up. I've got to go back to sleep. Verse 15, an exaggerated exhaustion. Verse 15, the sluggard buries his hand in the dish and he wears him out to bring it back to his mouth. <laughs> It just took us so much food and just so much work to take that bite. I mean, you mowed the yard, it took 30 minutes, and you're, you're done for the day? It's not a pride if you like to work hard. Did work for 30 minutes. Been on your phone for three hours. I have a niece who's not yet two years old. She's starting to really put phrases together. She is pretty cute. Over the holidays, we were around, and somehow she picked up the phrase, long day. So it's 10 o'clock in the morning. She's had cereal. She's played with blocks, and she's walking around going, hmm, long day. Long day. It's cute when you're two, it's lazy when you're 20, when you're 40. Christians go to bed tired. God gave us sleep because we're supposed to get tired. Go to bed tired every night. And lastly, laziness is unreasonable. The sluggard, verse 16, the sluggard is wiser in his own eyes than seven men who can answer sensibly. Someone who wants to be lazy, you could have seven people standing around there saying, listen, no, really, we need to get this done today because there's, there's a contract deadline and people are waiting for this part of the project for the next part of the project and the weather's going to be bad tomorrow. We should really get this done today. And the sluggard will find a way to say, no, no, that makes sense. I just got a feeling we should take the day off. Let's call it a day. 2 Thessalonians, Paul is addressing the unwillingness to work. Laziness can show up in all sorts of ways. It's connected with all sorts of sins. Spurgeon recalls, once I was going over to a minister, or going to give our minister a pretty long list of the sins of one of our people that he was asking about. Spurgeon says, I begin with, he's dreadfully lazy, that's enough, the gentleman said. All sorts of sins are in that one. What's Paul's instruction? What does Paul have to say to the lazy, to the idle? That's about as close as the Bible ever gets to Bob Newhart counseling. A woman comes in for counseling saying, I have this fear of being buried alive and I begin to panic and it keeps her from doing all sorts of things in her life. Bob Newhart, and this, this is a totally comical skit, Bob Newhart says, I charge $5 for the first five minutes and nothing after that. So he says, I'm going to say two words to you right now, and I want you to listen to them very carefully and take them out of the office and incorporate them into your life. Are you ready? This after she's told about how she can't go to work, she's scared to go out of the front of the house, she's scared to live her life because she's afraid she's going to be buried alive. What are Bob Newhart's two words that he wants her to take with her out into the world and incorporate into her life? Stop it! Stop it. Stop being afraid. The next five minutes is just her going, that's your counsel? Yeah, five minutes, five dollars for that. Now that's not the whole essence of Paul's command. But Paul does give a command. Paul commands laziness. To the lazy, Paul says, command and encourage. And it's not command and give a hug. It's command and exhort Command means this is in order. This is a command. Encourage means to exhort, to earnestly make a call, to clap your hands and say, let's go. Get up. The Bible is replete with strict instructions towards slothfulness and laziness in God's people. In a book about what really matters in life, Ecclesiastes 9, verse 10 says, Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might. For there is no work or thought or knowledge and wisdom and shield to which we are going. Likewise, in Romans twelve eleven, Paul says, Do not be slothful in zeal, but fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Colossians three twenty three, Whatever you do, work heartily. It's for the Lord, not for men. For the Lord... Under what authority does Paul give such a command? Is Paul just frustrated and losing it and starts to get preachy? Look in chapter 3, verse 12. Now, such persons we command and encourage and listen to what Paul invokes, in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and earn their own living. This is a matter of the authority of Jesus. This is a direct command in the authority of Jesus, we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus to do their work quietly, to go to their vocation, make their money, earn their living, do your work. In other words, Paul is saying, Would you tell Jesus no? Would you tell Jesus, the Savior, the King of all heaven and earth, hey, I don't want to. When we do not do the good we were recreated for in Jesus, for the glory of Jesus, because we're lazy, we're disobeying a direct command of Jesus. When we do not do the good we were recreated for in Jesus, for the glory of Jesus, because we're lazy, We're disobeying a command of Jesus that Paul has given. In conclusion, whatever it is, whatever it is that thing in your mind, whatever that thing on your calendar that you're already dreading, but you know is good and can be really good, there's a characteristic about yourself that you want to work out and see sanctified and prayed for some circumstance the Lord has put you in to do good and show Christ-likeness the thing that you feel you can't do or don't want to do. If it's causing you pain, remember the eternal perspective of judgment. Seek God's power through prayer. Remember the purpose of the glory of Christ. Remember how our salvation and even our work of good is an undeserved grace. Remember the truth Don't be deceived by lies in the world. Be comforted and strengthened by your salvation. Don't be anxious. Be comforted by your salvation. Remember the truth of the gospel. Let the truthfulness of the gospel be the most sure thing, the establishing thing in your heart. The eternal comfort is your comfort to do good. And Don't be lazy. Heed the command of Christ. In Christ you are saved by grace through faith to good works. Get up. So glorify the Lord with good works. Whether pain, whether it's deception, or laziness, that might wear you down from doing good, do not grow weary in doing good. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for today. Thank you for this new day of this new year. And it's a day where we have been taught to think about new things and forward and next year and opportunities and the wonderful mystery of what might be out there. Oh God, help us think forward in all of those ways about goodness, about doing good, about exemplifying Christ-likeness, even when it causes us pain even when there are afflictions, even when there is persecution. Help us stick close to the truth. Help us stick close to the truth so that the truth of the gospel would be the eternal hope that we feel and are established by to do good every day. God, would you protect us from laziness? Would you help us to take our lives very seriously and the authority of Jesus risen from the grave, reigning in heaven, coming again, helps to take his authority very seriously and so do the good we've been commanded to do. Thank you, Father, for your power, for your strength and for your continued grace to do good. We love you, Father. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.